Welcome to today's episode of the MISO TV podcast. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Marjorie Zauderer, a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Zauderer talks to us about the thought process she and other medical oncologists employ when determining whether a patient should enroll in a clinical trial and which trial that should be. MISO TV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization, provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellock and Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novocure, Merck, the Gory Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli Sweeney and Misenkothen. Visit curemiso.org to learn more. Good morning, Dr. Zatterer. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this next episode of Miso TV. We're super happy to have you. Um, to many of us, you are a familiar face. You are the chair of the board of directors of the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. Uh, but also for those people who may not know you, uh, would you mind introducing yourself uh, and you know your professional affiliation? Sure. So I'm Marjorie Zouderer, as you said, and I am a thoracic medical oncologist. So I am the person who deals with the systemic therapies and the treatment of cancer. Um, and I take care of patients who have lung cancer as well as mesothelioma, but the majority of my practice is mesothelioma and all of my research is focused on mesothelioma. I work at Memorial Sloan Kettering um, in New York City. Thank you. Um, today's topic of conversation is clinical trials and more specifically, the thought process that you and other oncologists go through as you are determining what uh, a patient should uh, be enrolling into. Uh, so before we begin talking about that, would you mind defining for us what a clinical trial is and perhaps also what a clinical trial is not? Sure, I think that's a good question. You know, there are lots of different clinical trials and I think for today's discussion, we're really gonna focus on what we call therapeutic clinical trials. So not talking so much about where you sign off, someone can use leftover tissue or blood or you know, ask a question like that, but focus on trials where you're getting some kind of treatment and there's a question embedded in it. And that's how I would define a clinical trial. So sometimes it's new medicines, but sometimes it's old medicines being used in a different way, a different situation, a different context and we're asking a question about how well it works in that situation or who the right people are to get that medication. You know, whenever we do a clinical trial, one of the things that we're always thinking about are what are the standard treatment options in that setting and is the clinical trial sort of appropriate in that context? So for example, you know, if you, just got diagnosed and haven't had any treatment, you know, you should be on a, we're not going to design a clinical trial where anybody's getting nothing. Everyone's going to get something. Um, and those kinds of decisions influence not just your selection of a clinical trial, 
but our thinking about it, our designing it. All of these trials have to be reviewed by your by an institution's um, review board, which includes other scientists, physicians, but also patient advocates. And so a lot of thought goes into, is this really a reasonable ask, a reasonable uncertainty for someone to consider? So say a patient, so let's just make a couple of um, examples of uh, at which point a patient might come see you and then what happens after that. So uh, for instance, if a patient comes to you um, newly diagnosed, they have not yet um, had any kind of treatment, um, what happens then for you? Do, do you first uh, have them do standard uh, therapies or is there some kind of a process here also that uh, considers clinical trials. Yeah, you know, I think in particular in my practice and at MSK, we're a pretty research-focused institution. By no means does that mean that all of my patients go on studies, but it's always part of the conversation. And, and some of that may also be a little selection bias because people come to us for what we can offer above instead in addition to standard treatment. The way I really think about it is what is this disease state that a person is in? So I think the first big differentiation is exactly what you mentioned, treated or untreated. And that sort of bifurcates the pathway. And then if you're in the untreated bucket, you know, there are questions about surgery. Are we talking about something that could come out, should come out? with a surgical intervention. And then you go to sort of down a pipeline with treatments that are structured and designed around that possible surgery and clinical trials that are designed around that surgical possibility. As opposed to if for whatever reason it can't come out or it's not safe to come out, shouldn't come out, then you go down to a different bucket of what the standard treatments would be in that situation versus what clinical trial options there might be. If you're previously treated, then it sort of depends. You know, we make a lot of to do sometimes about how many lines of treatment and, and all of these things. And, but those are really just sort of artifacts of the review process, the regulatory process in different countries that leads to drug approval and development. The biggest differentiation is treated or untreated. Today, because there are choices between chemotherapy and immunotherapy, the way a lot of different trials are structured and the way we think about treatment is not just are you treated, untreated, but have you gotten immunotherapy or have you not? Because that influences the selection of the regimen and the different types of trials that someone's potentially eligible for. So when we think about, as you said, a person who's untreated, newly diagnosed, whatever they do, it's got to be some active treatment. And you want to make sure that what you're offering is at least as good as the standard of care. So for example, one of the big trials going on now is a randomized trial, meaning that Patients don't decide, I don't decide, but a computer system decides behind the scenes what you get. But the arms are both reasonable in that randomized trial called DREAMER. 
So people are assigned to either get standard chemo, which is exactly what they would have gotten if they didn't participate, or 50-50, they might get chemo with an immunotherapy drug called trivalumab. So I think that's a reasonable trial to consider because you're not, no arm is worse than the standard of care. One is the standard of care and one is a combination with an extra medicine that might be beneficial. So you'll see that a lot of the trials for people who were just diagnosed are standard treatment plus something else, not necessarily challenging or replacing what those standards are. Instead, when we look at people who've already been treated and gotten different therapies, it starts to become a little bit more complicated in terms of my thought process, because it's not just what did you get, how well did it work, did you tolerate it? So I think about someone who maybe got ipilimumab and nivolumab as their initial treatment, and it worked super, super well for a long time, and then years later, there's something else going on. So to me, that's really different thinking about the potential for other immune treatments in that person than somebody who maybe got ipinevo and it just didn't do anything for them. And so we don't understand the biology that drives that, but we start to sort of lump and split people. And that's really all that medicine or thinking about trials is. We sort of put these rough designations and labels and we either clump them together or we split people apart. And that's how I usually start off thinking about these options. So, um, and, and so it's, it's obviously fair to say that, um, that your thought process clearly changes as often as new studies come out with new data. So you're constantly adjusting uh, that notion. So if, um, and so the new thing that's happened uh, in mesothelioma treatment is the recent approval of the immunotherapy uh, combination that you just mentioned. How has that changed, that calculus that goes into this big formula that, that you work out? Yeah, it's a bit of a mess, to be honest, I think, in the sense that a lot of our trials for people who've gotten prior treatment required that people got chemo. But now people don't necessarily get chemo as their initial treatment. And so the question is, if you've never gotten Pemetrexid, but you've gotten Ipinevo, does it make sense to go on to something experimental or should you not go on to something experimental before you've had Pemetrexid with or without other agents? And there's no right answer to that. You know, I think a data purist would say, we have no data for how well chemotherapy works after immunotherapy. And that's true. We don't know how well pemetrexid-based chemo works afterwards. So then when you're thinking about a trial and a construct that's an unknown in terms of how well it might work, you know, what number are you comparing it to? So I think that's made it very difficult to think about experimental trials. My own bias is I also factor in the trial design and the risk of the construct. So 
right now in our sort of portfolio of trials, we have a lot of phase one immune-based therapies. And I think that phase one clinical trials are important, um, you know, but ultimately there are trials that are set up that are dose finding and establish the safety. And what that means is that a lot of people get very low doses of the drug and it may or may not work. And we don't know if that's because the drug doesn't work or it just wasn't a high enough dose yet. And it also means in a lot of situations, we don't actually know the ceiling. We don't know sort of the full, what the full dose should be, and we don't know what the full range of side effects are. So a phase one trial, by definition, is higher risk than a phase two or a phase three, with a few caveats. Sometimes it's a different drug, you know, in combination or formulation, and the phase one piece is you know, sort of perfunctory, but for the most part, they're riskier. So would you put someone on a risky phase one clinical trial instead of giving them chemotherapy where maybe you don't know exactly how well it works after immunotherapy, but it has a long established track record? You know, that's a tough decision and that's a really individualized conversation with a patient what their goals are, what kinds of side effects they're willing to tolerate, what kind of uncertainty they're willing to take on for what kind of potential benefit. You know, so I think that's the biggest way in which I've seen the Ipinevo frontline approval really change how we think about second line and beyond trials. Um, we recently, uh, we recently spoke about um, targeted therapies, um, and this is where these early phase trials um, really come into focus. And you are somebody who has um, also spoken often about the importance of the biology of the tumor, especially for mesothelioma, where we see a small portion of the population responding to these major therapies. So at what point, um, does this become something that is considered in a patient's uh, treatment? You know, that's a tough question. Um, there's no clear data to say that um, this type of testing and evaluation should be part of standard care. Um, that said, you know, we reflex all of the mesothelioma tissue we get for molecular testing because we believe that it's important first prognostically um, in terms of telling us even within a big bucket of let's say epithelioid mesothelioma where there's still tremendous variation it helps us understand who has maybe more aggressive and less aggressive disease i so we do that up front we often don't have the results back to inform an initial treatment decision, but pretty much every decision after that is influenced by those mutations in two ways. Is there something actionable or a target, let's say for NF2, for a long time we had an NF2 study open, our study closed, but there's studies elsewhere for NF2. So when I see that, I'm always thinking about where else someone can go to get a drug for the target in the tumor. 
And then prognostically, we've worked on and developed algorithms that help us integrate the genetic mutation profile in a sort of prognostic picture along with other features of the tumor and the person with the disease to help us understand what the future might look like. You know, even the things we think of as sort of not so targeted are still targeted. You know, every drug we give has a target. I think the question really is, can we use that identification of the target as a biomarker to predict response to the treatment? And that's the piece I think that we're still struggling with. You know, there are some trials that have done that, you know, and in, in the UK, there've been targeted studies with PARP inhibitors. You know, there was an international trial with an EZH2 inhibitor for BAP1 deficient disease. When we think about the um, ADI PEG and selecting for the arginine synthetase deficient tumors, there are those studies, but none has been sort of as of yet a smoking gun saying, aha, like we really, we really nailed it this time. Um, so we're still waiting for that in this disease, unfortunately. For a patient, uh, so, so let's just say a patient comes to you, um, they're already in good hands because they found a major cancer center that has a mesothelioma program. And I think it's important to say that not all major cancer centers have mesothelioma programs. So one like yours will have a number of clinical trials available, and you just alluded to this, um, but perhaps the trial that's right for the patient is not offered at your center. So how does this work for a patient um, practically, perhaps even logistically? What, what happens at that point? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I, it, it depends on the person, where their home base is, and what their circumstances are. One thing that you know, and um, maybe a lot of the people listening know, is that the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation does have a travel grant program, which has been very helpful for patients who are trying to go to a center of excellence for you know, treatment or participate in a clinical trial. But typically the way this plays out for me is I will email the person running the trial at the site that seems at least on the surface geographically to make the most sense. And then I usually give the patient the contact information to like set up their account with that person and that center. But I tend to hear back from the researcher pretty quickly, whether it's still open, their spots, things like that, to help kind of get things in motion. Because I think these kinds of transfers between different centers can be labor intensive for patients and their families and take a lot of time. Um, but if we really think it's the right thing for someone, we, we try to see if there's any way around the geography. And different trials have different requirements. You know, there are some studies where there are infusions every week, you know, with long days and monitoring. And there are other ones where you might only have a treatment every three weeks. And in between, you can kind of go back and be wherever. And then there are other trials like our T-cell program where we've treated tons of patients from far away. And it's a very intensive 
you know, 60 days, but when the 60 days are over, you're kind of done and you, we just follow you and can do that a lot of times from afar. I do think one of the things that everyone's talking about and focused on, and certainly we have a real initiative about it, is sort of how we take this accelerated advancement of telehealth medicine and translate that into clinical trials. Can we have the so-called, you know, virtual clinical trial? Are there ways that we can work together where you can have, you know, labs and assessments elsewhere and really, you know, come infrequently, if at all, for assessment on site. And the more we're able to safely push the boundaries on that, that will also sort of help with access and equity uh, to clinical trials to make them, um, you know, more of an option. Again, not meaning everyone has to or should go on one, but I don't want the these barriers of location and cost and inconvenience to be the limiting factor for as many people as it is today. How do you make sure that uh, patients don't disqualify themselves right off the bat from, you know, a number of trials because they enroll in that one that makes them ineligible for the rest? Yeah, you know, so the, the trials are really structured around treated and untreated. So once you're treated, whether it's on a trial or standard treatment, you're by definition no longer going to be eligible for all the studies of people who haven't had prior treatment. And there's no real way to avoid that. And I'm not necessarily sure it's something we should worry too much about because anything of sort of activity and great interest is going to be studied in multiple different settings and contexts. I think there is some thought and strategy when you think about subsequent trials because some trials exclude the number of prior treatments you can have had. Some are more or less restrictive on, you know, breaks between different types of treatments. And so you have to think about how you layer those things together. But I would say I always start by saying what's the potentially most effective agent, trial standard for the disease. And then once we sort of identify those lists, well, is there something strategic about you know, doing maybe one that's one level down that we've graded in effectiveness, but doing it first so we don't lose the ability to do something else. But I think that I still let the efficacy trump it because what whatever's in study, you know, we just don't know who it works for and how well it works. And you never know. We always hope that there'll be something, and if it doesn't work, there's something. But it, for sometimes for people, they get sick and they're no longer eligible, and then you sort of save this thing and you don't get to it, and that can be really difficult too. And so, you know, I think it's important, even when you're getting care locally, that you really have somebody at a big center sort of in your corner that you can call or see when you have these kinds of bigger picture questions about the strategies and not, you know, it's just hard, I think, for community doctors or doctors who don't see a lot of mesothelioma to kind of 
have a good sense of what everyone is doing and to put those plans together. So I think that's that's a constant kind of conversation and we're all always behind the email the scenes emailing each other like what do you have what do you have you know going back and forth between all the big centers trying to figure out who has a study for the patient that's the best fit yeah and it's an ever like you just said a never changing landscape uh, we've talked about the benefit to the patient uh, which is that they're getting something perhaps different or not or standard but um, they're getting something to treat their cancer. Uh, but now on the flip side of that, um, you know, especially for treatments that a patient could get outside of a clinical trial, what is the benefit uh, to actually doing it within the guidelines of a trial? Yeah, you know, sometimes the trials, first of all, are understanding it in a slightly different context, but you know, the monitoring on a clinical trial is tends to be more rigorous and more uniform. So people are being monitored for outcome and for side effects more closely, usually, than a lot of times in standard care. I also think it creates a very sort of high quality resource that becomes the comparison for everything else that is done down the road or in parallel. So, you know, we'll never know if chemo with immunotherapy is better than just chemo unless some people are treated with chemo in that study. So it's the, it's the sort of necessary way, at least today, that research is done to answer these kinds of questions and to get approval. So that if it is more effective, that the FDA says, okay, you can do this and use it. So, you know, the benefit when you're getting a standard is, is you know, there's a small benefit maybe to yourself, but the majority of the benefit in that situation is really to the field. Okay. Um, so this exhausted my questions, but is there something that patients ask you that I did not address or something that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the questions that patients ask a lot, which is a really important question, is sort of how insurance works with clinical trials. And I think, you know, as we all know, the cost of care is just outrageous. Um, and, you know, it's a big concern. There are guidelines um, in this country that um, indicate that clinical trial care for cancer should be covered by Medicare. And therefore, most of the commercial insurance policies also follow that. And what a lot of the big centers do is we, when we have a trial, it gets reviewed by an external agency and they tell us, you know, this is a standard of care. You'd be having that blood draw to check your counts, whatever treatment you were on, whether it was on a trial or not. So that can be billed to an insurance company. But if we're getting this blood draw to see how your body's metabolizing the experimental drug, that's research. That doesn't get billed to the patient's account. So for the most part, these things, it shouldn't really cost someone more than any of their standard deductibles and co-pays. But that's something that we can always do, like a benefits inquiry beforehand to kind of get a better sense. I have to say that in, you know, 
a dozen years of doing this, I haven't, knock on wood, had an issue with that for a patient, but it's always a concern. Um, and I think sometimes people are intimidated to ask about that or to talk about that financial burden of the experience sometimes uh, with the medical team, and you shouldn't be because it's an important part of the sort of care paradigm that, that we all have to work on together. And when it comes to the finances of it, I just, you said it, and I want to remind everyone that the Mesa Foundation does have the travel grant program. So Absolutely. if anybody needs help traveling to a clinical trial location, they should contact us. Uh, all of the information is on curemiso.org. Um, so with that, I want to thank you very much for your time. Um, and thank you for explaining this uh, so well for us. Of course, always, always a pleasure, Maya.